How many of you uh, had the problem with the COVID-19? Anybody, anybody catch that? Anybody have a, a problem thereafter with some fatigue? Ever experienced that? I've been there. Now, for me, um, this provides a good excuse. The, uh, the material that, that I was asked to prepare for has to do with our bearing witness to one another and to others based on our experience, things that we've gone through, things that uh, we have either suffered or perhaps have enjoyed. But the idea is, is that we're able to make a personal connection and to have a link with somebody else because of what we've gone through, a shared experience, a means of, of building a bridge. Um, we, we want to be able to uh, relate to other people, and we, we really can if we just consider that we're all in the same boat together, and many of us have similar difficulties, similar things that we face, similar joys in life. Um, there are two ways that I'd like to look at this uh, this afternoon. One has to do with direct experience, where here is a, a direct situation I've been involved with, and you've been involved with as well, and it gives us an opportunity to relate. And the other is has to do with indirect experience. There's a general uh, patina that we all have because of life, and uh, hopefully we can see and understand other people. We can sympathize. We can relate to them without having to experience the particulars of their life because we, it's impossible to experience everything that other people experience. It's impossible if you've never stolen to relate to a thief on the basis of your stealing. But can we understand that individual? Can we make a connection with that individual? We should be able to, particularly if there is a, a, a pathway of communication, of being able to, to relate with others, this kind of bearing witness. I'd like to begin with a passage in the book of Colossians, the fourth chapter. And uh, in verse 5, it says, <clears throat> Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may uh, know how you ought to answer each one. Well, the walking in wisdom has to do with our, our general conduct in Christ. This has to do with a, a people for whom Christ is important. That means that uh, we, we have an awareness of how we came to Christ. We have some idea of how it is, why it is that we believe. Now, I don't know if we all articulate that in particular in our mind, if we have that laid out, but there should be in each and every one of us some explanation as to why we believe and what we believe and perhaps what our biggest influence in coming to Christ was. Uh, what were you like before you received mercy? What were you like before you were born again? And how did the, uh, the coming to Christ make a difference? What kind of things were involved in your transformation? These are things that we carry with us as we walk in wisdom in the world. If we don't carry them with us, if they're not a part of our life, then, then something's missing. It's like, well, the importance of Christ is, is like decoration, but it's not really uh, ingrained in us. Now, that being said, it goes on to, to speak of redeeming the time. That means making full use, good use of the time. We have a purpose. We have a reason for being here. Our breathing, our heart pumping uh, 
blood and oxygen through our system has a good purpose. Time is being redeemed. And then it goes on to, to talk about our speech. Our speech be with grace. That means that it has to come from, from truth. It has to come from what we have received from God. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're all the time quoting the Bible, but it does mean that, that our speech is conducted because of our appreciation of the things that are in the Bible, things that come from God. That keeps us from speaking foolishly. It keeps us from uh, unclean things. It helps to, to keep us so that our speech is largely friendly, easy to receive by other people. And then it goes on to speak of, of this speech seasoned with salt. Now Jesus uh, describes salt as something that gives savor. And we, we like things that are savory. Salt adds, adds that dimension of savor to the food. Except, uh, well, I shouldn't say. Oatmeal really needs salt, you know. But, uh, pardon me, Sharon, wherever you're at. But the idea of, of having our speech savored means that there's experience involved. It comes from a background of reality. We might have good words, but perhaps we're, we're inexperienced at those words. Um, I remember when, when Sally was giving birth to our first child, I uh, was in the, in the room with her, you know, and, oh, it'll be good. Come on, it'll be okay, that kind of thing. She just wanted me out of there. <clears throat> I, had, I had a lot of good intentions. But, you know, I had no experience. There was no salt in that at all. You know, was, come on, you can do this. Um, but, uh, but when it comes to, to our life in Christ and our relating to others, it should come from a background that, that is real, that there's, there's a saltiness there. There's the salt of experience. And then uh, we, we have the idea then of the, of, of the, the one who's receiving it. Uh, here, here it says that you may know how you ought to answer each one. That means there's, there's some kind of a, a receptiveness that's involved there. There's something that, that the other person may need or that, that would be good for the other person, something that would build that person up. And I don't think that necessarily means that we have to understand that person specifically, that we have to know that their innermost conflict, because we don't always have access to that kind of information. But nevertheless, there should be that, that willingness to uh, impart things that are useful, that are friendly, that are helpful to that person based on experience. So there's two, two areas again. One has to do with direct experience. You're two sisters together and they're talking about childbirth. Okay, that's real direct. But there's also the, the indirect, the, direct, uh, the indirectness that comes because we understand life. We have some sense of, of the difficulty of life and of the joy of life and we can relate to other people. In a direct experience, we might say, I've gone through it, I know what you mean. The circumstances might be the death of a loved one, the trial of a particular temptation. It may have to do with loss of income, loss of health. All of these things are, are common to people, but when you experience them yourself and then there's somebody who's going through that, I know what you mean. I've been there. I, I, I think we can find strength in the Lord in this matter. This is what I found. This is what helped me. And that's, this is a good witness. It's something that's useful. The Lord wants us to express ourselves to one another, to, uh, to be more than just people that are acquainted, but people who can relate and talk about the serious 
issues of life. Now, God must be glorified in all of this. It, it just can't be a matter of, of me and what I've gone through. And uh, let me tell you this. And I've got another story to relate. Maybe this will help you. And on and on and on. Pretty soon it becomes me, the storyteller. And it can't be that way. Uh, for this reason, I think the idea of relating direct experiences ultimately is going to be a minimal thing. There will be occasions when it's proper and good, but that's not going to be the common conversation of our life. It can't be, because then pretty soon it's going to be all about my story. Let me tell you my story. You got a minute? Let me talk to you. And it, that's boring, isn't it? It gets tiresome after a while. We do have accounts in the Bible of speaking from direct experience, and I'd like to take a look at these things uh, as perhaps a, a, a template for us. The first one is Jesus himself. Now, when we talk about Jesus speaking of himself directly to us, we recognize that we can't match that. We are not the only begotten. We do not know what it was like when he was just the word. I shouldn't say just, but before he became a man. We don't experience that. We don't understand that. But he became one of us in order to minister to us. In, uh, in the book of John, the sixth chapter, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. How does Jesus relate to you or to me on that matter? Well, we have these two words, hunger and thirst. This resides in the lives of people who are looking for something more than what they have. There's a need there that Jesus came to address, and he could sympathize with us in that need. He could see that need. He knew what it was like to feel that need, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But this, this makes it possible for him to speak directly of his own experience and who he is and what he has to give to us. By the same token, we may not be able to speak with the words of Jesus. I can't say I am the bread of life, nor can you. But we can minister the things that have to do with the bread of life. We can minister the things that have to do with satisfying a thirst in a person's life. In the 8th chapter of the book of John, verses 12 through 18, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, this is kind of interesting because it, it touches on the idea of somebody speaking of themselves. And uh, here in this case, if, if, it, if that had been me speaking or you, the Pharisees would have been correct. This would have been blasphemy. But uh, when it came to Jesus, here's something that he had to say. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am, the, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And I particularly like this line when he said, I judge no one. This is, I believe, the key for the entire world. Here we have, we have done foolish things. Some have, have done very degrading things in life. 
And yet here's Jesus saying, I judge no one. What a relief. Here is the creator of the universe saying, I judge no one. That should give us pause, and that should, should be something that we in turn can minister. Here's somebody perhaps that uh, uh, maybe what they do is, is um, obnoxious to us. Maybe we feel like, you know, this is, oh, this is way too much. But the question remains, is there an avenue? And perhaps there will be an avenue. I'm not saying that everybody that we meet we have to minister to because we're not, we're not the Lord. But we do have opportunities and Jesus said, I judge no one. Who knows who can be brought out of the depths of iniquity? Who knows to what extent the Lord is willing? Well, we know that his, his reach is very deep. I judge no one. And this is what he witnessed to us, his experience as he looked at mankind. So that kind of gives us, I believe, an avenue of approach. If you'll turn with me to the 22nd chapter of the book of Acts... Here we have the Apostle Paul uh, bearing uh, witness in, in a manner that I would say this is a classic example of bearing witness out of his own experience. Prior to this uh, 22nd chapter, we find that uh, he had gone to the temple, taking certain brethren there to help them to fulfill a vow that they had made. And while he was there, the uh, enemies of the gospel made a big deal out of it. He's brought Gentiles into the temple. They stirred up a mob. As a result, the commander of the, uh, the garrison that was there uh, came to, to break things up. They took Paul into custody. And then Paul asked for opportunity to address this multitude. And that's what we have in, in part of the 22nd chapter. It starts off this way. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are, are today. There it is. I was like you. I know what you're going through. I know why you're doing this. I did the same thing. And he went on to explain Jesus, the gospel, and finally, when he came to the idea of the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom, that's when things blew up. They, they, they didn't listen to him anymore at that word than they began to, with their riotous behavior. Can you imagine tearing your clothes, throwing dust in the air, you know, just coming unglued? This is the kind of behavior that they had. And uh, it made me wonder, what was going on here? I couldn't help but think that Paul probably saw himself in them. And everything that was going on in that riotous behavior, that was him before Christ. That's the way he was. Very approving. He was holding the garments of the man who stoned Stephen. He said, I was breathing out slaughterings. He spoke of, of causing some to blaspheme. Who knows what he did for that to cause them to, to speak against the Lord. But he did those things. He was just like that mob, which made me think, could it be that from among those people there were those who received the word of Paul with all outrage, who in turn were being prodded just as Paul had been prodded, those goads that pressed on his mind when Jesus spoke to him. Jesus referenced that. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Perhaps there were some goads now present in some of those minds that they were being responsive to perhaps later on. Who knows who was converted from that multitude later on? I don't think we can say no one was. 
I don't think we can say that it was an empty gesture that Paul gave at that time. The Lord knows. But the fact remains is that this was a witness. This was a reaching out. He did this a few more times. Uh, one had to do with uh, when he was before, I believe it was Felix, and uh, he there was a, a, a the council was brought, and he was able to uh, speak before the council. And be, I think Felix was supervising this, and at that time there was uh, you know opposition to Paul, and he saw an opportunity, and he said, "I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead." That caused the Pharisees to relate to this. Oh yeah. That's an important point, and as a result, the Sadducees and Pharisees began to fight. I don't know if that was Paul's intent, but the purpose of his speech was to introduce truth, and it did reach somebody. Did it help some of the Pharisees later on to reconsider Christ? I do not know. And then later on, he bore witness before Agrippa, and uh, there seemed to be this connection with Agrippa because Agrippa was interested in the kingdom. He was a little bit like Herod. You know, Herod liked to hear John the Baptist. That's such a strange thing, Herod, this corrupt man. But he liked to hear John. Well, Agrippa apparently had a, a profound interest in the things concerning the kingdom of heaven and the things that were in the Bible. And uh, Paul endeavored to relate to him on that point. Um, one of the things I'd like to, to consider is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. This is the, we might say, the umbrella of Paul's life as he ministered in the earth. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Incidentally, uh, concerning this matter of ignorant, I don't think it meant that he was, he was without understanding of Jesus Christ. He knew some things about the gospel. He knew some, uh, some of the things that were surrounding the name of Jesus. I'm sure the resurrection of the dead was a part of that. But the ignorance came from, I believe it comes from the word ignore. When we're, when we're really hot on something, when we're real fired up about something or focused, we can ignore facts that are pertinent. We can just kind of brush them aside because we've got something more important that occupies our attention and our reasoning. I believe this is the ignorance and unbelief that Saul had back in those days. But later on, by the grace of God, he was able to be transformed. The grace of God was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. This was the, I guess you could say, the umbrella statement of Paul's life. There's a pattern here, a pattern of God having mercy to the sinful. And this is, this is a pattern that we all can share in. We all have have had the need to repent, haven't we? We all have had the need to seek salvation from the Lord. Now, I recognize that, that uh, there are many of us, and thank God there are many of us, who have been raised in homes where we have a good influence of father and mother. And as a result of that, perhaps we, we had some regulation in our life, not only from our parents, but from the things we learned from our parents. And so perhaps we didn't do things that were too outlandish in, uh, in our life before Christ. Does that mean that it's 
invalid, that you can't relate, that you can't reach out to the lost? In no way, because it all comes down to recognizing our need. Every one of us, no matter what our background is, we should know that there was a need to come to Christ. We don't come to Christ because we're doing God a favor. God is being merciful to us. So that need, the recognition of need enables us to be sympathetic toward others, to be understanding toward others, even though we haven't done the same thing. You don't need to go out and commit murder in order to be able to minister to somebody who has done such a thing. We don't need to be involved in the things that uh, many of us have done in order to relate. This isn't a call to sin. It's simply a call to recognizing need. We all have a need. And in Christ, that need is satisfied. It's fulfilled. And so on the basis of that, we can talk to others. We have other examples in the Bible of, of direct experience, but, but time kind of prohibits going into that. Uh, I, I think I ought to move on into the area of the indirect experience. And to me, this is, this is probably more important than the other, inasmuch as it probably covers more time. In fact, I know it covers more time than the other. You, you just can't go around talking about your experiences all the time. That's just, have you ever been around somebody that just does that? I have. I remember a guy that, you know, it's like everything. Oh, we wept and we talked about Jesus and on and on and on and on, you know, and it just, oh, you just want to get out of there after a while because it's all about him. It's all about us. If that's all we have is relating our experiences to people, dropping names. I, you know, brother so-and-so said, and this guy said, and so on. It's kind of like, come on, you know, who are you? Let me know you. But um, it's the indirect that, that helps us to truly relate to other people. We know what trouble and sorrow are. Every one of us, as time has moved on, we know these things. We, we live in the world. And death is here. Temptation is here. And this gives us an avenue. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry. And uh, we, can't, uh, we can't look at Jesus saying, well, have you been there and done that? I have. The things he went through. I can't imagine what it would be tempted to, uh, to be like to, to, uh, to, like to be tempted in those things. I can't turn stones into bread, can you? I can't go to a pinnacle and uh, have the potential to throw myself down and, and not hurt myself, just float around, maybe do some figure eights up there and show people how powerful I am. I can't do that, can you? I'm, so I'm not tempted to do that. I'm not tempted to rule the world, are you? But Jesus had these temptations and these were real. So how does he relate to us on that? If we can't experience that, even begin to know what that was like, how can he look at us and help us? Well, don't you suppose that, that in these temptations that he went through, where the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life were engaged, that it enabled him to understand us very well? It enabled him to be able to help us. We as adults, now we understand the troubles of our children because we've been there and we also, we also see them in, as a parent sees them and we see them in love. 
but we don't go back and, and relive all of those things. We can understand when a child is troubled without experiencing that same trouble ourselves, because we have this relation of knowing what it's like to be here. Jesus knew what it was like for mankind beyond anything that we could possibly know because his stature as a man was way beyond us, but that didn't take him out of the arena of being one of us. So the things that he experienced, he could relate to us in those things. He could understand, he could sympathize, he could feel for us because of these temptations. Why, why else was he called? Unless it was to settle the issue, are you going to be able to handle life for the sake of your brothers and sisters? Are you going to be able to handle the will of God and the power that you have for the sake of helping people? So he was tested, and he understands our situation in being tested. Hebrews, the second chapter, uh, verses 14 and 18 through 18, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, I recognize that the book of Hebrews was uh, written to address our Jewish brethren and to help them to make the transition from the, the customs of the law of Moses into an age where those customs would be very hard to fulfill. That was written to help them to fully walk by faith and not by sight. But nevertheless, the principle stands true for we who are Gentiles or come from Gentile backgrounds. We are still of the seed of Abraham through faith and we share in that same foundation as our Hebrew brethren. And so here is Jesus and it says he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. That sojourn in the wilderness, that fasting and that temptation enabled him and it still enables him to aid us because he knows what we go through. He understands that. Does that mean that Jesus has to go through every little thing that we have? I know sometimes we might find comfort in that. Well, Jesus knows what it's like because he's been through that. Uh, he was in, tempted in all points as we. Well, not really in the, in the literal sense. He wasn't tempted to have an abortion. There are many things I'm sure he wasn't, he, he wasn't tempted to do. He wasn't tempted to, uh, uh, to speed down the highway to outrun a patrol uh, car. He didn't have that kind of temptation. How could he understand? Well, he could understand because he knows he knows what it's like to be human. And he knows what it's like, the, these lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eye, these urges we have in our body. He knows those things. And he knows that many of us are not happy to be there. He knows that and he's able to, to reach out to us and help us to overcome. Um, we, might, uh, we might ask this question. How would something like this look in our congregation if we were to bear witness. Now, as we kind of made mention before, concerning the direct witness, it, it could only be uh, minimal, I think. We don't, we don't want to be involved in self-absorption. 
my experience. You've got to hear my experience. This is what I've been through, and so on and so forth. We can do that to a certain extent, but finally, finally, it gets old after a while. Our life should not be the object of attention. Our life is to reflect the love of God. Witnessing from the indirect experience is the broadest and most useful. It helps us to be merciful toward others and their circumstances. It uh, subdues irritation and criticism toward others. You know, you get, you get kind of feeling a little cranky about somebody. And when you look at it, it's, it's not really that important. It's not really that big of an issue. And then finally you realize, you know, this brother or this sister over here, they're here for the same reason that I am. We're on the same page. There are many people in the world that I would love to be on the same page with me, but I've got you. Well, that should be a bonus rather than a criticism. But sometimes we criticize because we get to be close together and we get to see one another's foibles in the light of the Scriptures. And so Satan can use that to cause us to, to lean on that irritation and to get a little grumpy with one another and to focus on the, on the small things and get petulant. And uh, these things rather can be set aside by recognizing that, no, we're in this together. And we all fumble the ball from time to time. And some of us have this childishness that comes out from time to time. We all do, but we're here together. And this is a good thing. We believe the same thing together. We're endeavoring to uphold the same thing together. And so on this basis, we carry out brotherly love. I think that's the, the primary difference. I know sometimes there's a, there's a big parsing between uh, the love of Christ, the agape, and, and the uh, filial-type love. But the, the two go hand in hand. But the, the, the one, the brotherly love, that has to do, I believe, with that, that bond of, of sympathy that we have, that underlying sense of, of belonging together because we, we share in the same background, we share in the same reality, and we're looking forward with the same hope and, of course, that the other type of love means the willingness to lay our lives on the line for that, for one another, and to do what's right toward one another because we understand that there's a standard there that the Lord has placed before us. Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. The Lord said, speaking to Simon Peter, rash Simon Peter, Simon Peter, who was always willing to say that he would do certain things, he would fulfill certain things, he was very confident in himself at that time. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. We don't find Simon Peter talking about that too much, do we? But when you read the books of First and Second Peter, you get a sense of a man who, who understands our situation. I'm sure when he ministered to brethren that he remembered those words. He knew where he came from. He knew that he was a confident man and he had to be crushed in order to recognize that he wasn't all that he thought himself to be. And that was valuable, a valuable lesson that helped him to minister to others. In closing, I'd like to read this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14-17. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ 
and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the Word of God. I mean, the Word of God can be peddled? Yes. It's peddled every day. I've got my little briefcase. I've got my pitch. And I'm coming to your door. It's out there. But he says, we are not as so many. As a sincerity, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Christ.